Hiya. Welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. This week we're with Helena Fitzgerald, passive house architect, who took a change of direction in her career after building a really beautiful passive house. Featured in the magazine, there's links in the show notes. Uh, the magazine being Passive House Plus, obviously. Uh, subscribe if you don't already, advertise if you can, if it's relevant. And she's now a member of the economics department of the University of Limerick. Jeff's known her for years. He thought she'd be worth talking to as someone who went down the Passive House route and was so inspired by what she learned. She got out of designing houses. She got into something else, something more focused on the whole cause of sustainability rather than just building houses to suit it. Really interesting lady. Good conversation. I'm sure we'll have her back. Enjoy. It's me, Jeff, and Alex again this week. Me being Dan. Cool. I'll just let you go. I'm tired. All right. Cheers. Bye. Helena, are you um, in your passive house? Yes, I am now. Fantastic. I, I'm wondering, is this the first interview we've ever done with somebody who's actually in a passive house, Dan Lamics, do you think? No, we had uh, Ross, Ross Kremen. Ross Kremen, that's right. Yeah, we had his passive house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the, we did one with him, Helena, about, um, uh, he had great anecdotes. We did one over Christmas um, about um, the turkey, not having a cold room to keep the turkey in for, for Stephen's Day, yeah. you know? <laughs> We have a few stories about that as well. That, oh, you can't you can't leave food out overnight at all. Like you know, I was brought up in a traditional kind of masonry farmhouse kind of building, um, and you know we had a cold store. You you could kind of keep food um, without it going off. But uh, we had friends down one time, and my husband had made soup, and we forgot to put the soup in the fridge, and and everyone got sick. Followed, <laughs> yeah, because the temperature is just so stable, and. Uh, yeah, so there there are kind of health and safety the uh, dangers of passive house. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a funny one. When we were uh, lobbying for the Delirio Down passive house policy a few years ago, one of the things that really sold it uh, to councillors, we invited councillors over one winter evening, um, and they met the homeowners and got the whole story from them. But um, I remember uh, Niall uh, Niall Walsh, uh, one of the homeowners. Um, taking jars out of the kitchen cupboard, you know, and uh, letting the, these people feel that they were kind of warm to the touch. Um, and I mean, I, I, I kind of, I didn't really understand it so much of the time, but it, but it, it was, yeah, it, it, everybody was kind of stunned, it seemed by it. the whole experience, sitting them in the experience and getting them, getting them to feel it for themselves um, was, uh, it made a huge difference, you know. Um, so um, we should start probably by starting. Right, um, and introduce you. But yeah, Helena Fitzgerald, um, thank you so much for joining us, Helena. Um, you're um, someone that I, God, how long is it I know you? It must be getting on for nine, 10 years or something like that, I suppose. Um, I encountered you through, uh, you built your own passive house, in which you're still speaking to us today. A very interesting example, along the same, in the same vein as John Moorhead. Um, uh, who I described as being kind of an architect's architect, who's also an anorex uh, architect. So he, it's the it's the polo neck and an anorak combination. Um, um, again, um, you you're producing building that building's a lovely piece of design, um, but but it's also you, you also have the kind of building physics stuff down. Um, so I'm fascinated by the fact that you went from 
um, you know, from being a very early um, adopter in among architects uh, uh, of you know the technical minutia of, of applying sustainable building. And then you went up on a whole different career path, which, uh, which uh, you know, I never, never foresaw. And now you're at what University of Limerick as a research fellow in uh, economics. Is that right? Yeah. Well, well, I'm based in an economics department, and I'm working on Horizon Europe research around the clean energy transition of cities. Um, so I am a bit of a an oddity in a department of economics, and I'm still very much an architect. I I cannot claim kind of genius status of having mastered uh, the field of economics and architecture, um, but I do find it a really interesting situation to, to be in, given my interest in the more systemic aspects of of the transition to climate neutrality. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting, Jeff, that you go back to uh, 20, I think it was probably 2013. I can't can't remember. Um, and we never actually met. We just had a few conversations around the time that you published the House and Passports Plus. And um, some of our interactions at that time actually led me to, to take this pathway because oh. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, so we, I built the Passports House and I'm really proud of it because, um, you know, I was really interested in sustainable built environments and really enjoy the kind of technical challenge of building a passive house, which at that time was, you know, when I began to look at passive house, I was looking at, you know, German uh, documents on thermal bridges, um, uh, using dial-up broadband in a, you know, a room in a Glasgow apartment, which is where I was living at the time, probably around, you know, the early 2000s. Um, uh, so the kind of navigating the process of, of taking that kind of theoretical approach and, and turning it into a building was was a big challenge. But then when it was complete, I was kind of I was taken aback in a way by how how it was viewed by kind of wider society. And a lot of architects, once they build their own house, you know, it's how they launch their career. They get it published. Um, they publish it in architectural magazines and lifestyle magazines and you know it becomes a calling card which you know they, they grow their practice from and I just found that I was just really uncomfortable with how the building was was presented as being something to covet or to you know be envious of and um whereas I I had really just been building a, a home you know for my family and one that I was trying to um use my knowledge to make sure it, it it did a little damage to the environment as it could. Um, but but also as well as just how it was received as a commodity. And um, the the other kind of aspect of it was that I, I just recognised that, you know, that there was quite a position of privilege to be able to do what I'd done and that it simply wasn't um, an accessible pathway for, for a large proportion of society to 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 build a passive house the way I had. Um, and it was those two things really which led me to look to kind of lift my gaze a bit beyond architecture and see like what else I could do. Wow. So were we um was our coverage of the building uh part of this kind of fetishization of it as well? No, I, I actually of all of the coverage, I think it's it's probably that the one that I'm most comfortable with because it did focus on the technical aspects. Um, 
I think the most terrific coverage was um, the Sunday Times Property Supplement, where we were we were the cover <laughs> image, um, put in a gilded frame, <laughs> literally a gilded frame, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, it was just mortifying to me. Like I just, I don't know. <laughs> you love kind of a mean, mean, mean kind of a yeah um, a, a character, yeah. Um. Yeah, like I think you know it, we move forward ten years and. I don't know if any of you have kids, but we're facing a future where our children can't afford to, to buy a house. And it's all it's all connected to that, you know, uh, positioning of, of homes as something as investments or, you know, not as a fundamental human right. Yeah, you're going to get Dan started now. Hang on. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it like we're having someone on to talk about how. Uh, so we've got a, a, a director of technical for uh, countrywide surveying services. So, you know, one of the largest valuers. Uh, in the UK, yeah. In the UK. Yes, in the UK, Jack. I have to correct you. Yeah. Yes, you're in Ireland. You have an empire once. You don't anymore, yeah. eh? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, part of that conversation is about how energy efficiency is going to impact asset values. Uh, in the imminent future, we're still at that point where we're pretending we're not. But in the UK, you know, we had another budget yesterday where uh, it was signalled from on high, but that there is no hope for anyone but the rich. Uh, no help, sorry, but hope is equally applicable. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting to see. Um, I can very quickly move beyond my competence here, but it's really interesting to see how the financial world is mobilising to to finance the transition to climate neutrality with kind of, you know, commitments for minimum lending for green investments. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see that that trickle through um, and to hopefully to have an acceleration and in, in kind of retrofits. But I think the potential, the, pr- the promise of the transition to climate neutrality is that it, it can actually transform our day-to-day lives and, you know, help address some, some of the wider societal challenges. And um, and a lot of my work of late has been finding pathways to allow that to happen um, because it, it's very easy. If we, if we continue to innovate the way we have been innovating, which has been trying to get kind of really technology heavy solutions and, you know, a, a kind of a, which have a really broad application um, that we, we could easily end up um, just amplifying problems which are already there. And what is interesting in the European kind of research space, um, and it's not really kind of a, because we still have that, you know, that there's still this idea that technological innovation drives um, GDP uh, growth. Um, you know, we, we still have this kind of growth model and it's very linked to STEM and technological innovation. Um, that, But we, we also have these ideas coming through in policy around, around how, and particularly in the clean energy package of directives, around how citizens have to be the centre of any transformation that happens um, and, and be able to benefit in meaningful terms from, from that. Um, so <laughs> I'm really happy. I've been so happy the last four years to work to work in this space because you, you're getting to work with people who, who maybe see the potential, the wider potential of the transition um, to, to just move to a more sustainable society. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of specifics, are, are you particular technologies that concern you then? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have to say, 
you know, the broader picture stuff, one of the things that's always been a pet hate of mine, I think an awful lot of people, uh, certainly uh, who, who, who come from the kind of, who, who've got, who are ingrained in the energy efficiency side of, of, of things. Uh, for years now, any discussion kind of, uh, you know, on a, on a on the telly or whatever, you know, about um, about climate action has tended just to focus on the renewables, you know, um, and um, as a very, you know, as if that's just the problem, you know, that's that's the solution to the problem. We can just replace uh, the dirty thing with the clean thing and uh, and continue as we've been going, you know. And and why wouldn't we? Why, why would we do anything else? You know. Yeah, that's a really lovely. It's a lovely idea that that's that that's going to be enough. But I think you know m- most people in the scientific community would acknowledge that 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 isn't enough. Um, And um, I think, you know, you you can see in Ireland that there's an understanding that I think that we can just replace oil with wind and everything is going to be fine. Um, And and that's got a lot of of, um, support, I think political support that, you know, particularly offshore wind, um, but also onshore winds, that, that this is kind of an easy fix and we just have to manage the communities who don't like wind farms. We just have to kind of, uh, and the new planning and development act is really trying to make it very difficult for um, for communities to be in, involved in, in the decision-making around the location of wind farms. And like I, from the work we've been doing, um, that my, my response to that would be that you engage more, not less. Mm-hmm. Um, and you engage in a way that's meaningful and you provide ownership, you provide pathways to ownership of these renewable energy assets for communities. So that it's something that that is really part of contributing positively to, the, to their lives and quality of life. And there are a lot of models like that in Europe. There are villages and small towns who are pretty much energy positive and have ownership. I'm thinking, is it Orkney or Shetland Islands have owned wind? have had community wind assets um ownership of assets for some time and um like the model works but yeah it just we're not quite there in ireland there's maybe a couple of examples but it it hasn't had the it isn't happening to the extent that it it should have and and it's very much in the spirit of the clean energy package of directives that we see a lot more community ownership i suppose it's quite subversive though isn't it from a utilities perspective is that the problem do you think yeah, it's actually very difficult to to fully understand what the problem is. Um, that we, you know, I've been working on this project around positive energy blocks and districts, um, which have been looking at the development of renewable energy assets and local kind of energy trading. Um, it, you know, with this kind of place space place based and neighbourhood approach um, to decarbonisation. And as we've been implementing the project, the Clean Energy Package of Directives is being transposed into Irish law and the Commission for Regulation of Utilities is overseeing that process. And there are kind of periodic um, reports tracking tracking that. Um, but it's it's actually quite difficult. And I'm I'm in the area, you know, it's quite difficult to, to understand fully why it's not happening as quickly as it should be. And um, there may be infrastructural issues. Um, I, I know that the perception in amongst my research partners in Europe is that the Irish energy market hasn't deregulated the, the, to the same extent as others. Um, but I'm, I'm not an energy en- engineer. So very quickly, I can feel out of depth in this, in this discussion. And I think that might be part of the issue is that it's very easy 
um, for the te- technology heads to bamboozle people and make it difficult <laughs> to understand. Um, what, what actually, well, the, the idea of, of kind of locally balancing energy supply and demand and, you know, trading, you know, energy flexibility, like they're, they're not that difficult to understand. Um, but when you start kind of moving up into the grid stuff, you know, they, they just they can leave you pretty quickly. I, I think the problem though, I think the problem though is that uh, there's a lot of emphasis, as you say, on this technology as being. I think it's the, the fact that it's shiny and it's new, and we are we are a society that loves the latest iPhone and the light, latest other thing, Gizmo, and we seem to have just become a society of just exactly yes, of just recognizing, going, God, I've got the latest thing. This must be the solution. It's it's perfect. It works well. It's got. Uh, I'll say it's got great user experience, so it's, it must be better. But isn't it though that coming back to I'm thinking about your house, it's about the you know, and Jeff. I'm sure you'll be happy for me to say this, but it's fabric first, isn't it? But isn't it about demand reduction as well? Before we even start thinking about how much energy we generate, isn't it about making sure that the built environment doesn't require that much energy, and also that we train people to recognize that rather than saying we're going to put a wind farm, it's going to be great because it's going to have technology is going to send us all this data and we're going to learn about it and we're going to see how it is being used well how about just stopping the need for using it as much yeah yeah so fabric first absolutely is the way to go but um you know undertaking uh, an energy retrofit is really complex and mm-hmm. we're asking everyone to do it pretty much everyone except for the more recently constructed buildings um so well, even someone else could do with a tooth you know yeah, so you know we're we're working on a project at the moment, which is um, it's an Internet of Things kind of de- deployment or demonstration project, and we're we're engaging with a hundred building owners and occupiers in Limerick, and you know we'll we'll get people kind of saying oh, we'd like to take part, and that they've you know they're retired or they're you know they're on a fixed income and they've done they've done the asset installation and they just really don't know what to do next and it, it you know it, it's just really complex I'm an architect and you know if you've got a kind of a, a particular type of building and they're kind of off-the-shelf solutions that's fine but if you've got an older building um the, the guidance it's much more difficult to work out what to do and in fact the grant grants available don't even cover um well I think it's you know, it's 30% of the built fabric of Limerick City Centre, at least, is a traditional heritage building. And there's there's nothing, there's no pathway, clear pathway for, for people to, to navigate that, even if they have the resources to invest in their building. And this is because of things like, without getting too jargony and technical, if there are two, for instance, to look at putting in a heat pump, um, you have a, a heat loss indicator target. You need to prove that the building is sufficient enough for SEAI to be uh, willing to sanction a grant uh, for, for a heat pump. It's those, those kinds of reasons that you're limited. It's difficult to make the fabric to, to take it up to the levels. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, and maybe to go back to what I moved on to immediately after the Passive House, which was the, I suppose, initiating and then co designing um, locally led agri environment schemes. Um, it, it's about this idea that diversity in our environment is actually, well, in our natural environment, we know is is just beyond value. You know, it's just necessary for resilience um, and that we should actively be working to protect diversity in our in our ecosystems. And what I suppose what I learned from, from working in that is that um, there's a really interesting paper by um, 
these uh, scientists called Holling and Metz, who kind of who kind of linked um, the processes of managing our environment to to resilience within our ecosystems, and they're saying that we need to have diversity of approach um, if we're if we're going to kind of maintain this diversity in our in our in the natural world. Um, and you know, they say that. When, when we're actually trying to manage and protect um, biodiversity, that sometimes we we kind of adopt these command and control pathologies and overly rigorous approaches, which destroy the very thing we're trying to to enhance and protect. Um, so the locally led agri environment schemes were were instances of that, where you know um, uh, a kind of a, a, a FAC designation of some kind of habitat designation was made on a particular landscape um which kind of was all about restricting practices and not actually understanding the system which had in many ways contributed to the you know the high nature values of landscapes in the first place um and how you know if you were to successfully manage those landscapes for biodiversity then that you you had to engage with the complexity of the existing system and design and co-create a proposal with the people who, who live and work at, and kind of manage those landscapes. So, so, so that was really interesting to me because it's a very place-based approach. Um, but the other aspect of that work was that it was results-based. Um, I'm going to see alarms ringing in your head. So, uh-huh. but, um, it's not about, um, you know, having 20 metres of, of hedge, hedge that isn't cut or, you know, it's not about kind of... Um, you know, this target is actually about the results that the intervention delivers. And the locally led agri-environment schemes were results-based, that farmers had freedom to um, achieve a, a kind of a specified range of outcomes. Um, they could do whatever they wanted, um, but but the result would be would be targeted. And there was some advice from the scientists saying, well, these are things you can do Um you know, if you repair your stone walls, you can have more targeted grazing, whatever. There were certain measures they would give advice which could help increase um, the quality of the habitat. But but there's a lot of freedom over how they got there. Um, and then the payment was directly related to the result. So moving so moving this to kind of the built environment, um, I just think it's crazy even now with all these targets for retrofits that we don't have a retrofit grant for traditional heritage buildings yet in Ireland, um, that if you kind of adopt a broader kind of systems perspective, that a lot of these buildings are located in urban centres and urban areas. And if you want to have more public transport, you know, more access, more actual actual access to services, all these kind of things, that the first place you should intervene is in is in our town centre locations. Um, going back to my passive house, which I'm really embarrassed to admit is um in the middle of the countryside with two diesel cars still parked outside that you know that that the technology solution is is just never enough it's just not going to deliver unless you take a, a much broader and holistic approach well what you're describing there is uh i mean thematically everything we've talked about here from fabric first approach which isn't really fully adequate for overcoming the challenge because, as you described, the money isn't there for it. It's really complicated. It's really invasive. Uh, the a switch to renewables, such a thing is possible, but it requires so much change in terms of uh, behaviour, development of infrastructure, development of expertise. At every single point, it's about systems design, and 
so many of these systems are so big, like it's a macro level problem. It's not just Ireland, it's not just the UK, it's Europe, and it's a it is a planetary challenge. It is an existential challenge, not just a, a planetary one. And uh we seem singularly ill-equipped to to deal with it. There are so many little bits where we can demonstrate magnificent success, but trying to scale that up, that seems to be the the wall we keep hitting up against. And what Alex was describing in terms of we live in a consumerist society. So we want the next phone. Consumption is encouraged. GDP is our primary metric for assessing whether a thing is good or bad. We've touched on this plenty of times in the past. All of that is inadequate to the challenge. As it says on the, the little tile for the podcast, we need to be focused on demand reduction, which Passive House is at the centre of. However much, as someone we spoke with yesterday uh, queried whether queried the embodied carbon associated with passive house it isn't necessarily uh well passive house as a standard is sort of embodied carbon agnostic i think jeff once described it as yeah uh, because it's an outcome-based solution you can see it in the results how we get there that's up for grabs like that's not what the passive institute dictates but ultimately we are gonna have to think twice about that as well yeah how do we overcome all these myriad challenges like i'm particularly struck by the the technological ones we were referring to the technological challenges and uh solutions in terms of renewables bamboozling people and at the moment in the uk we have a nation being bamboozled by hydrogen uh as a a potential source for home heating (laughs) which all the people whose opinions i trust they call it horseshit the people who i don't trust are lauding it (laughs) there's a some thematic consistency there as well. So how do we, I mean, yeah, how do we encourage proper systemic thinking? Yeah, <laughs> I think, well, the project I've worked on has initiated um, this new service, I guess you could say, um, for the local authority in Limerick called the Citizen Innovation Lab. And in all of the work I've done since 2013, um, in meaningful engagement with people and communities around the future of their of where they live um i've been really struck by how innovative people are that you know the entrepreneur doesn't have a monopoly on innovation um and particularly when it comes to the addressing the systemic challenges that that we face that um that it, engaging broader society as innovators in that process is, is really, really important. Um, we're going to be heading into a very interesting space where we have national, binding national targets to decarbonize, you know, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 51% by 2030, climate neutrality by 2050. And um, what's going to happen <laughs> is we're not going to hit it. Like we're not going to hit the 2030 target. Um, for sure. Um, And I think we're going to see society mobilise around the fact that the the government hasn't succeeded um, in making this something that people can do. Like In Ireland, the EPA have been doing fantastic work. They've done this uh, climate change in the Irish Mines survey, a very kind of large scale um, a piece of research which is understanding uh, developing an understanding of how Irish people think about climate change and 86% are worried about climate change 
quite a large proportion, I think over 50 are willing to become uh, activists in some way to promote wow. change in this area. Um, so we have this kind of, and that I don't think that comes across because we're still, the way government works, we're still very uh, kind of led by sectoral interests who could claim yeah. to represent society, but represent kind of sectors. And um, that I think if we can give voice to citizens and communities who really want just to have some kind of future um, for, for their children. And um, that if, if we can create pathways for that, that we can start to get very interesting things happening in terms of addressing the systemic barriers that exist. And, I mean, this is, you know, this is in spite of the citizens' assemblies that we've had in, in this area. Uh, but I completely see where you're, where, where you're coming from. You know, um, I, that's very hard to disagree with you. Uh, I mean, it's about making people feel a sense of ownership of this, right? Owning the issue and uh, and and trying to give them a feeling that they can do something about it. And if you have that level of anxiety, um, you know, if you uh, the, the majority of people being worried about this, then there's there's um, research recently which showed uh, that people who are um, actually engaged somehow in trying to trying to address climate change, for instance. Um, have better mental health uh, around this than people who who are worried about it but are not engaged, you know, because at least you're 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 feeling you're you're feeling it, feeling some kind of function. Uh, but I just wonder. I mean, we're talking about the complexity on one one hand. One of the things that you said early on, which I which which uh, really resonated with me, uh, and uh, I'm guessing is central to your thinking, is you talking you, you were talking about benefits. Um, so you know, if we're trying to sell something. Conceptually, people that's so sprawling and, and vast, um, um, that's that's a hard sell. But if you can show them that the benefits are potentially sprawling and vast too, um, you know, uh, then surely that should be central to to, uh, to you know, like fully understanding them and communicating them uh, um, should should be sort of central to how we approach this. If you've got a disempowered, like you said, sorry, sorry to be splitting hairs, but I don't think it is. Like you said people take ownership or people should be encouraged to take ownership and i like if you're thinking about things at a systemic level just like yeah. elena said coming from centralized government the only forms of governance that we've got yeah. you can't take ownership you are disempowered like we've seen myriad protests over the years and the best you've got is a gay marriage and abortion rights and those are magnificent milestones in governance but this really big stuff what is co-opted it? Like we met Bill Bordas the other week, uh, Adrian Lehman, and by the end of the conversation, we we're asking Bill a similar question: like, what do you do, or where should we be putting our attention? And he he said, as other people have grassroots, like uh, ground up, because top down isn't going to cut it. And he's advocating a thing called soft retrofit, which I haven't looked into, so I can't comment on yet. But it's not squishy materials stuff, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it, it it sounds like do what you can because better is better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in reality, that's what people do. Like people, every you know person on the fixed income who who's trying to you know deal with these huge energy bills this year, they're trying to do what they can do. Um, and I suppose what we're seeing in Limerick is that if you have some kind of resource that helps people work collaboratively to, to navigate what their pathway is 
um, and to gather data and what the barriers are, and then to feed that data into policy making at local and national government level, um, that you you might just get a much more granular approach to the transition, which is much more response responsive to you know real conditions and and real world experience. Um, so so what, what we what we've got in Limerick is a living lab, and it, it's just that it's about engaging with the with well you know it came from kind of user experience engaging with end users of technologies um and involving them in the process of, of developing those so that they they're they're just a better fit that you get a better solution um but but i suppose what what we're doing is we're we're trying to apply some of those methods as a, a systematic co-creation approach to to better understand the problem and then to to try and, and work towards towards identifying solutions so the first really obvious one in in limerick is is to find a, a grant a way of funding retrofits of traditional heritage buildings um, and then it's it's understanding that at a socioeconomic level that we that we we have people who can buy their way to climate neutral lifestyle you know um, <laughs> and <laughs> that's great um and then there are probably Sectors in society in in Ireland, it would probably be people who still live in council-owned accommodation or who have accommodation from some of the large housing providers who are likely to have their retrofits funded in some way through through this larger organisation. But there's a really large kind of gap of people in the middle who still, you know, might be struggling on a day-to-day basis or just don't have... 120,000, whatever they, they need to retrofit their house. Um, and it's, it's those people, I think, that we need to to really focus on um, finding pathways for. That's very interesting. Um, uh, I, have you, um, <laughs> I do, uh, I'd love, this is just because I'm a fanboy of, uh, of his podcast, but um, uh, the king of, of Limerick, uh, Blind Boy, have you? Yeah. Have you thought because he's taken a big interest in the climate stuff, um, you know, over the last couple of years? Have you thought about uh, reaching out to him and engaging him with any of the? Yeah, um, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I think he's fantastic, um, but I don't know who he is. I don't have his email address, Jeff. Well, I just thought that guy around with the what was it, JC's? I think it is this uh, famous legendary uh, supermarket from Swords in North Dublin bag on his face. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, what we are doing, though, which is kind of um, like I work in European research and we have this this, this kind of language that we use to, so we can I can collaborate with someone from Estonia or Norway or, you know, we all, all speak this kind of language of sustainability. And um, and it's really valuable for that reason. But when you, you come to to maybe start talking about some of these concepts in you know, in particular places, it's a real barrier to communication. So we did this project last year, um, which is part of the Creative Climate Action Fund project um, funding scheme. And, um, you know, we engaged kind of a number of community groups in to collaborate with an artist or creative industry partner to explore how they might decarbonize. And there were really interesting projects and they all led to a behavior change, which is, is now kind of embedded in those communities. So it was a really su- successful approach. But but part of our work was um, to encourage the communities themselves to tell their stories. Um, and 
we, we kind of thought this is important because we want to get away from, from this kind of EU language and to make it place specific language. Um, so that it's, it's more part of people's, uh, people's day to day lives and their worlds. But, um, what we didn't understand was the extent to which there's a lot of disinformation at a community level around some of the things that could happen and how some of the groups became aware of that through this process and began to address it through kind of peer-to-peer exchanges. So, so there's definitely um, a scope for cultural embeddedness and, and storytelling in the way that Blind Boy does in Limerick. Like, he's amazing. I think, um, yeah, he talked, um, he had a recent podcast as well, just to link it to your uh, heritage buildings too. It was an episode where he talked about um, uh, a uh, research indicating that it's quite common in a lot of old Irish uh, houses to have horses' skulls under the floorboards. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and he was theorizing that this is for acoustic reasons that the, that the that the that the uh, yeah the, the sound kind of acoustic properties of a horse's skull are uh, like a kind of a natural microphone, and that people would have this under the under the floorboards for dancing or for better reverberance for 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 playing music. I don't know what the thermal conductivity of a horse's skull is now, um, but uh, you know I'm not I'm not advocating that we go and fill our our, our floors and and and, uh, and cavities with, with with them, you know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure of its place in a fabric first approach in terms of energy yeah. efficiency at this point. Although horses' skulls would reduce the need for like powered speakers, perhaps. Yes, there might be some issues with that approach. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, but it, it's it, it's a fascinating one, and I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I completely see where you're going. That, that you know, the, the kind of language that the contorted language that you end up um, uh, when you have to disseminate the results of a European project or something. Um, uh, and you know, and the problem is that the, the stuff that you're reading, the stuff that you're presented with, it's not designed just for you know for the function of of uh, the user. You know, if you're approaching this purely. To, to to from the user's perspective um it's it's got all of these other kind of you know targets and goals that it's got to achieve um, and therefore uh you end up with this mangled thing that's uh yeah, it's not relatable i think it, it's not relatable to people um and often and horizon europe research in particular like it, it is at the limit of what is um implementable um implementable so you're at, you are at the horizon of knowledge um so in many respects um well in particular positive energy blocks and districts you know it, it's still kind of um not that achievable we're still kind of working on refining the approach to make it easier to to um, make this happen in urban environments but then there can be really simple things at a local level that can have a real impact. So one of the outcomes of the creative collaboration projects was um, that one of the communities said that, uh, or discovered that they had an invisible bus stop in their area, that there was a bus going through their area, which stopped, but there was no bus stop. So nobody knew where it stopped. The driver might be like thinking it that way, yeah. I thought this was really funny. And then I began to notice every Irish rural town has an invisible bus stop because you get all these buses stopping and people kind of know if you live there you know the bus stops but there's no bus stop (laughs) (laughs) so making uh making these kind of low carbon behaviors more legible and visible yeah in communities it's a really basic thing and 
you know, like that, if you did that tomorrow and said, I'm going to go around to all of the places in Ireland that have invisible bus stops and they're going to put up a bus stop, be interesting to see what impact that would have. That's on fascinating. Yeah, we have the opposite problem here. Um, directly outside the apartment building uh, where I'm, I'm recording this from the, the office pod downstairs, it's kind of built around scheme I live in. Um, there's a bus stop, a very visible bus stop, but no bus. <laughs> the bus, the bus. So, so that's there's a lack of coordination between where we place the bus stops and how we plan the bus routes. Yeah, but isn't isn't the issue isn't isn't the issue though that it's you know I'm being a bit facetious here, but it's it's expensive and difficult to go and talk to all those people. Like, why why do we want to spend all that time when we can just have a sort of a a top level down solution? I know exactly what you said, Dan. About it doesn't work that way, but. Isn't that really the issue? Is that everyone's thinking, well, I've got to go and talk to people. I don't want to talk to people. They're going to yeah. tell me things. Well, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. So, so there, are two, there are two things there that we need both, okay, in the interest of balance, you know, that we do need uh, technological innovation and we also need to talk to people. And the other thing is that we, we've been uh, using digital tools to try and scale up participation and find ways of more people contributing um, their knowledge to help guide uh, decision makings at a local level. And that, that's proven quite successful. I mean, and there's more we want to do in that space. But I, I've always been really interested in GIS systems and mapping, you know, that there's so much, they're fascinating, all these layers of, of, of information. Um, and yet they don't really capture everything, every piece of knowledge about a place. Um, uh, and I'm really interested in the idea that you can use even just simple kind of mapping, crisis mapping tools to infer more knowledge, more kind of you know ex- real world experience of being in that place into these GIS systems to inform better decisions and, and policy making and, and to let people know that they're actually might be a bus route, but there's no bus stop, and that's why we, we don't need the bus. <laughs> yeah. Out of interest, in that case, do you track um, social media um, chatter, as it were, at a regional level, local level? No, that sounds really interesting, but no. Okay. <laughs> well, it'd be difficult to know where to pick up, I suppose, because you you have to do a bit of profiling. Like the chatter that you get on a Nextdoor app is quite different to that you'd pick up on Twitter or Facebook. But yeah. And my point again, it, it's difficult, but it's it's necessary sometimes. Especially for misinformation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so I think it's also so digital tools have a place for sure. And then also working with existing community networks. You know, so they're existing structures and they have, you know, they have their own Facebook page or Instagram or whatever it is. They have their own way of communicating. And and again, they they're some of the work we've done has just indicated um, that there was a belief that um, solar panels don't work in Ireland. And they, they were able to kind of address that through, you know, through the processes that we we enabled through the Citizen Innovation Lab. Um, and that will trickle through their, their networks and their exchanges with each other. Um, so, yeah, so, so using existing social networks is really important. And in fact, Another kind of pattern, because you know, we're doing stuff all the time, and then you see these patterns emerging, is that um, sports clubs are really important. Um, oh, yeah. The local GAA club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but not everyone's in the GA Cup, so it's yeah, not yeah. the only. <laughs> you can't. Uh, no, 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 I know, no, I, I'm not really into GA. It really but... annoys me actually when um when wind farm developments kind of say oh, we're going to give money to the GAA, and that's like their kind of community gain from because you know society is much more complex than that, and it's not, there's never just. You're, you're right. I, I abhor the idea. Uh, it's uh, it's like um, many years ago uh, when Dan and I were working on another magazine. There was a YouTube gig going on uh, in, I think it was Slane, um, and uh, the boss of the, of the magazine uh, asked if we were going. And the way, and we said uh, said we I think he said I wasn't interested. And then the look in his face, the idea that I might not want to go to this gig, you know that. It's this idea that 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 we don't all have, and it's the same thing with with, with GA or whatever that you're, you know, that we don't all. This idea of a homogenous culture, um, you know, uh, yeah, I find I find it very, very alienating, you know. Um, so. Well, it's very shallow, isn't it? And again, it's systems thinking. What's the easiest? What's the most prominent uh, point of engagement? Mm. I mean, that's that's something I wanted to ask. Like, if you're working with communities, how do you initiate engagement? So as to ensure that it's meaningful, because meaningful engagement is one of the outcomes against which you'll be judged, presumably. Well, so through uh, the Publicity Exchange Project, which is like the mothership of, of all of this work in Limerick, um, we um, we developed um, a series of six concepts on how to engage cross-sectoral stakeholders in the clean energy transition of a city. Okay, so it includes a kind of a top-down element, which was about how the city can create an open interface to allow it to use its power to engage with its stakeholders and to progress um, towards their climate goals. But then we had all of these other ideas, and, and there's a participation playbook which focuses on how we need to move to continuing processes of engagement. At the moment, you know, you're going to uh, have a you know new development. And it goes into planning, and there's a you know you can make your submission, and uh, it's considered by a local authority, and uh, they say yeah or nay. Um, and the, the, that that has to change because there's going to be there's going to be just so much change. Like as we accelerate uh, towards climate neutrality, there, there's just going to be so much um, a consultation. And that like if we can't, we were talking before we started recording about how. This week, we've had a new energy performance and building directive text. Um, there's also been a new clean energy energy direct, series of energy directives, a revised energy directives from the EU. Um, and I can't keep up. Mm. It's impossible to keep up with the mm-hmm. volume of change that's happening at an EU, in the EU kind of policy. Um, and that's going to trickle down to local communities and then you're going to get all of these planning applications and it, there's this increasing burden of participation and I just think it has to flip it has to change completely so that we have continuing processes of engagement that when citizens contribute um, their perspectives and their knowledge that it it isn't it isn't just in one discrete kind of box about this development that it is actually stored and is findable and accessible and reusable um so that there's just a kind of a a reservoir of this type of knowledge to inform lots of decision making um and i think if that happens and if it's much more proactive engagement then you're more likely to get developments which consider that and are better designed and have a much easier pathway through um through the consent processes um so 
Um, in terms of engagement people, then we've adopted this thing called open innovation um, so that the invitation, an invitation is a very powerful thing. So you can invite communities to participate and they can choose to take up that invitation um, mm. through an open core process. And so that this, like, it's, it's just kind of good manners, but, you know, like, would you like to do that? Uh, yeah, really, that could be kind of interesting. We'll do that. And then you, you've kind of got buy-in. Yeah, so that that's how we that's how we engage. I would love to see as well. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking more in terms of of, of uh, high profile kind of communication. This, do you remember the the Up series or Seven Up, as it's kind of more of, uh, formally known uh, or informally known? Um, the, the documentary series that was on British, it's still going on, I think, on British TV. Yeah, yeah, it's still going. Seven years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they follow these yeah. these kids. Um, throughout their life, you know, um, uh, something along those lines, that kind of way of thinking, but I suppose on a more regular basis, um, with challenges like this, I think would be so, you know, because this, this idea that, that it's, uh, the conventional kind of, we have a problem and we, we do, we, we, we find a solution and that's it. And the narrative is over. That's not really applicable in this case, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the Irish kind of climate action plan. You know, it calls for a new social contract or a strengthened social contract. And I don't think adequate consideration has been given to what that might look like in an Irish context. And, um, you know, so so we've we've done what I think is a really interesting thing, impactful thing in Limerick with the Citizen Innovation Lab and all the t- tools and processes we've demonstrated and continue to use. Um, but because it's not a technological innovation, right, how do you, how do you, embed that and scale that up in how the local authority works. But there's, there's a kind of a blind spot around how we innovate. And if That's you that. don't meet those criteria, then you can have impactful innovations, which are process innovations or social innovations, and, and there's no real pathway to, to scaling those up. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is like encouraging behavioural change, because you're absolutely right. Like embedding innovation in that sense, it can't be technologically led because it's just a tool, isn't it? Like you could do it with emails, you could do it face to face. I'm sure there's an app for it. You could use Slack. There are myriad ways that you can initiate and sustain these things. But really, what you're trying to do is encourage, uh, I'll say it again, systemic change, but through behavioral means. So perhaps it's like a, a, more like a templated approach uh where you you demonstrate this worked this this is a best practice idea but it is not applicable to all situations why not try running it yourself to spread it through local authorities we're involved in a project uh, along those lines which we've no idea whether it'll have legs or not we're dealing with a quite a, a narrow cast version of the challenge but we're hoping that it's the sort of thing that we can export up and down the UK. I mean, to to Ireland, because it's as much about understanding how the procurement system works anywhere as it is understanding what people want. Because we all want more energy efficient homes. We all want more comfortable homes. There are various bodies now that are prepared to pay for them. So you've got this in Ireland. And the innovation of the one-stop shop I mean, I say innovation, like it's a, it's a tried and tested format in other regards, just not this one. 
Um, it's a challenge to get such a thing up and running because it requires a very different approach to construction. It is not, you come in, you, you build it in the way you've always built things, uh, you move on. So in the, in the case of retrofit in particular, you know, we've spoken with really experienced retrofit practitioners who've got out of the game because it's a pain in the ass. Like it's a pain in the ass in terms of dealing with your customers. It's a pain in the ass in terms of getting paid. It's a pain in the ass in terms of the dealing with the funding bodies. We might as well just go and work somewhere else where it's easier because none of the behavioral issues are ever dealt with. People's needs, not just tangible practical needs, but emotional as well, don't appear to be considered or catered to. That's really interesting. And it's it's absolutely the reality of people's experience of, of undergoing a retrofit. And it's why, you know, like at a media level, they've, they've got this kind of new European Bauhaus policy mechanism. It's really interesting to see. Um, and it's trying to kind of, I suppose it's trying to adopt a much more holistic approach to the process of transformation and, and to kind of do innovation differently. But, um, and it was brought in by Ursula von der Leyen, you know, so it's, it's kind of been tied on to the Horizon Europe programme and doesn't really have a huge amount of funding. And then I was reading something last week where, you know, all the kind of um, science STEM innovators and uh, researchers are kind of saying, well, that's fine, but you can't really expand the programme without giving giving us more money. We're not going to give any of our money uh, because we still need fundamental research. And um, the, the, it's, it's really interesting how how political mm. this is. And all I can think of is that we need to amplify the experiences of real people trying to do good things and and then to analyze those experiences and and try and identify ways and work with them to 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 understand how we can make this pathway easier. Oh, straight up. Like uh, there's a sorry, Jeff, I'll let you in a sec, but I worked, I worked on a, a an ESG messaging positioning and framework for a, like a massive asset manager a couple of years ago. And it was a really interesting project because they were, you know, they manage money. And so they were prepared to consider their impact in. So ESG is environmental, social, governance, frameworks. Ways that's, of, that's for a listener's benefit, not for Helena's. Helena will be all over No, that. no, it's because it's Jeff is a dummy and he can't remember <laughs> anything. Jeff, there you go. That's what ESG means. You were looking very confused. Yeah. And they were prepared to do something and they were prepared to think in terms of impact. And because what their job is, is that they invest money. What I found particularly heartening was they were prepared to look at the impact of their investments or start to consider the impact of their investments, not just how they heated their own office. But when it came to responsible investing, there was a, I had it open on my desktop anyway, because I was talking about it with someone else yesterday. One of the things that they considered in terms of responsible investing, so this comes from the proof points that we created from, communities typically negatively impacted by climate change are usually underrepresented at decision-making levels. And these communities are the prime sources of innovative solutions because they're the ones who bring first-hand knowledge of the actual tangible negative impacts of climate change. And because they've been impacted, they have a desire to do something about it because it's been a part of their everyday existence. And that's, I mean, that's something I've carried with me. I'll pull it out in various forms 
quite frequently. But I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. Engage people at the coalface. Yeah, and also to accept, like, okay, so there's a, there's a kind of theoretical basis for the work I, I do. I'm not going to get into it today because I'll lose the room. But um, you have to accept that there's a non-correspondence between people's lived experience and the bewildering diversity of cultures in, in our places, which provide, you know, bring so much joy to our lives. Like I, I traveled last weekend from Carlo to go to Glasgow, because my husband is from Glasgow, and fi- in 500 kilometers, just the variety in building type, in accent, in food, it, like it's just amazing, you know, and it, it's really important to to value that in this process of transition. Um, because as you, you just said, Dan, but it, it kind of builds resilience, you know, and, and it's, it's a common theme when you look at, um, and, it's, and it's not that I don't, you know, I I believe in, in science, you know, I believe in all of the, you know, the amazing work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and, you know, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Groups and, um, but but we have to recognize that there is an issue around how that track, you know, how that feeds back into meaningful change and increased capacity to, to respond. Um, and if you look at the Millennium Ecosystems Assessment, unlike the IPCC, they kind of undertook to engage with um, what they refer as indigenous communities in their global assessment of the health of our ecosystems. Um, there's a really interesting paper where they just they describe how they did that. And um, you know, so they would would gather kind of people's experiences of, of the health of their ecosystem. Um, and invariably these would be in local languages. Um, and then, but they had to kind of have some kind of rigor around how it could get incorporated into their reporting. So they would have to triangulate the data. So they'd have to get three stories kind of saying the same thing before they would say, well, this, this is something we can include. And then as it got up, moved from the local to the national to the regional to the, you know, it, it got translated into English. <laughs> so anyone who's read Brownfield's translations will know of the perils of, of translation and what meaning can be lost um, in doing that. Um, and so the guy who wrote the paper uh, said that ultimately they failed, that there was this kind of sign of knowledge, um, which which meant that that these perspectives were were not uh, represented as much as they had hoped would be. Okay, so that's not to devalue the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. Um, it, it's just to say that this is is something that happens, and if if scientific processes, you know, um, strip out this place specificity you know, in order to draw their conclusions, then you have to apply effort to put that in. Where is the storytelling? You know, this is the thing, you know, um, we, I was thinking when you were asking about um, uh, a while ago about, about how we, I mean, how, how we kind of get this stuff to kind of really, you know, get properly ingrained and how we hold governments and local governments and so on accountable uh, I think I think having ongoing stories. I don't want to be laboring the up series idea, but the idea that you know that that uh, that we're going to be cons- presenting the information in a way that that is meaningful to people and letting uh, the people who are who are you know involved in kind of controlling 
policy and so on uh, locally or nationally know uh, that the story is an ongoing one that the, uh, and, and that, that their, their successes or, or failures when engaging perspective will be part of the story. Um, you know, it just it feels to me like that, that, that is something that should be kind of considered. I just don't feel that that's that, 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 that there's enough. And I have to say, I get very frustrated too. You'll see something cropping up sometimes, you know, um, in the media. Uh, while while um, I'm starting, you know, like even starting to have conversations with journalists and with producers on in, in uh, across the media, different kind of media platforms, uh, and enables there, you know, there's more of a willingness to get into this technical substance and the, in the the detail of this stuff now than there has been in the past. You'll still see misinformation coming out even from the media. And I remember the uh, piece of RT News ran um, a few years ago on Europe's most energy efficient house, which is basically a Celtic tiger bungalow with with an enormous amount of solar on it, you know, um, um, and a bo- an oil boiler that wasn't mentioned. Um, but, you know, um, uh, that that kind of stuff, you despair, you know, uh, because, because you, you know, media platforms have a huge reach and the ability to to spread uh, what I would consider to be, uh, you know, poor advice or misinformation um, mm-hmm. and, and, and lead people in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah. So so I suppose a lot of, of, of what I do is to try and counter the kind of the tendency toward kind of monocultures that exist in society. Yeah. So I remember reading one time that the demise of local media, local you know, as an indicator of this, of the strength of democracy. Um, yeah, so, so definitely storytelling and local storytelling of, of this process of change is really vitally important uh, from my perspective. But there's also um, a really fundamental issue, and I think it's really prevalent in Ireland, is, is just the centralisation of power and how you have to de- decentralise decision-making. Um, for it, you know, and also this, this idea, you know, if you ask people, I think the EPA picked up on this, if you ask people what they understand by just transition, they say just, just that, that it's 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 kind of a, a change that's going to benefit all, that's not going to leave anyone behind. Um, if you look at a policy perspective, what is meant by just transition, it's it's related to those particular areas where industries, which were, you know, carbon, major sources of greenhouse gas emissions, um, are, are being you know, uh, phased out. Um, so, so the, there's this gap, I think, all the time between between what, what what government is doing and what it kind of what people understand that they're doing, or um, government talking about you know the the kind of action plan that was just released before Christmas. I think it was 2023. Um, you know, said that now we're going to focus on engaging communities. But yet Limerick has had a had a uh, a vote to have a directly elected mayor. Um, I think three, four years ago now, and there's no sign of that directly elected mayor being put in place. So, That's probably the fear of blind boy getting in, you know. There. Well, no, but it's about it's about trust. Like you either trust people are going to do this, or or you have this command and control pathology, which means okay, you might control everything, but. But you're not going to achieve your. So, 
So it sounds like you're advocating for revolution then. <laughs> I know I sound like a real radical. <laughs> I'm not at I'm not at all. This is all in the policy. This is this is kind of what you know at European level and clean energy packages director, they, they all advocate this. And it's it's not happening to the extent that it needs to happen. So I'm not a radical, I'm just communicating the spirit of the policies which exist and, and hoping what, to get what you're highlighting is a a, a maybe a disingenuousness or a, a double speak in what is presented and what people are actually prepared to put into action and actually prepared to put into effect. Because when you're speaking from these vaunted ivory towers of the EU, these things can be passed down. And when it gets to a local level, it becomes a different thing entirely. And because language is such a flexible and fluid tool, like, you know, like I've, we do this for a living. Like we, put words together to carry meaning or not to diffuse meaning in a way that that sort of uh, obfuscates like as a communications professional i've had to do loads of those sorts of things they're working in esg for the banks various banks i've had to say things that were they were very true 100 percent true but there are many truths um and what i said was true but it wasn't necessarily meaningful um, that was before you got it back involved with me, Dan. So just, just I'll, I'll set you right. Well, and I, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to tell the truth about how Jeff and I started as well. Like, we weren't uh, knights in shining green armor. No. Like, we were just trying to make advertising revenue. Like, we got sucked into this and started to care, and then all of a sudden, you can't help it. It's a way back, you know, when I started working with the kind of farm landscapes, and I was working with. Uh, commonage farmers hill farmers and you know that kind of burden of participating they were getting loads of stuff thrown at them and one of them said to me you know talk is cheap so talk is cheap <laughs> and there's a lot of talk and I think the sooner we can move to place specific programs of decarbonization like what does it mean to have a climate neutral society and economy here um which has the kind of evidence base which has measured what you know, what greenhouse gas emissions are now, and then co-create the approaches to move away from those and um, with the people who live there, uh, which is kind of measurable and verifiable, verifiable. And that's the technology bit. That's the tool. You know, these mm. are the digital tools. Yeah. Um, does that, I think that's, that's where we need to get to very, very, very fast. And setting targets for retrofits, in my view, I can see why it's done, but ultimately it's it's meaningless unless you actually engage with the real complexity at a local level of what that means and what it delivers. Well, I think if the targets are backed by money, then it it is useful as a stimulus. Like, and I'm prepared, like philosophically, I'm prepared to let some bad work go ahead to create conditions in which the good work can thrive. And Jeff, I don't mean anything like the Preston retrofit catastrophe. I mean, that is just a poor... You mean, you mean not, you know, you're talking about not letting the excellent be the enemy of the good, basically. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Better is better is better. That's a situation we need to be pushing things in. I'm ever more, I need to go and... He sent us a deck, did Bill, about the, the soft retrofit approach. I need to have a proper look at that. I've skimmed it. It looks really interesting. And... And one of the aspects that looked interesting in what he presented was it is about setting expectations, mm. like creating appropriate expectations. Like 
something that was highlighted in, I can't remember if it was that deck or another one that he sent, which was about our expectations of comfort. How comfortable should we expect to be? Being comfortable in one's own home is a relatively recent uh, invention. It is something historically that we've not had, but there's no reason we couldn't have it. Well, I think I think that's a good point, actually, because I think that what's been missing in everything that we've been talking about is also the concept of desirability. And, and I'm not talking about having a nice home, and that's, that is always desirable, but how do we make this entire complicated process that's involving absolutely everyone desirable to the, to the point where my typical example is how do we make it as desirable as having you know the latest uh, ipod let's say just to bring back the back in the day when they, we brought in the ipod and it was this new, new desirable thing i know it's just a commercial imperative to just try and sell and shift product here but there's an analogy that's really important is that you need to make people want this stuff because otherwise uh, at a local level People or on the individual level, people are not going to really want this. They're going to find it's complex. They know they've got to do it because it's uh, it, we've got to you know stop the world from burning. But it's all about being quite negative. You have to start making people think about the desirability of wanting to become and have that status of being in a in a world where our built environment is is decarbonized, is comfortable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got to start in introducing those ideas as well. It's not just about the policy. It's not just about you know the technology, etc. And by the way, Helena, I am absolutely for technology i'm not at all against it i really do love it but i know that it has to be tempered with other things and there's the fact of the culture that has to come into it and desirability for me is maybe it's not the right word but i think it's something that we need to consider to have a mind shift as well we need to consider the entire effort that we're making around retrofit about decarbonization desirable at a human level yeah, the technology fan banging on about ipods <laughs> absolutely <laughs> used to be, absolutely i will continue to be our head it. of digital <laughs> I'm using I'm using iPods because it's it's back in the day. It's such a symbol of. Do you remember that company? Suddenly, it just turned a technology that was already there. Really, it's always been there. MP3 players. So, for, for any Zoomers listening, <laughs> an iPod is like an iPhone, except it had an LCD disc- display that was just one color, and all you could do was play music. Exactly. So, so basic. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's uh, what you're saying because, um, like at a policy level now, there's a lot of interest in well-being indicators. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like desirability are very difficult to measure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's in, in, in immediately subjective. And, and so that's probably why it hasn't, it, it hasn't been considered as much as it, it should be. Um, but I do know that, you know, that they're looking at beyond GDP kind of, economy, you know, looking at indicators beyond GDP of, of the, the kind of state of the economy or looking at post-growth or, you know, um, zero growth economies and and well-being indicators that will, certainly will have a, a major uh, contribution to make in, in those scenarios. But gosh, like how how do you how do you kind of identify well-being indicators? Well, you just need, to, but I think as well you need to make them again. You just need to kind of storify them, whatever you know. And I think um, and repeat this the messages, the simple kind of stories. It's whether it's the stuff that the kind of stuff I'm always kind of shouting on about with passive house. Um, you know, the the try and make it palpable for people, you know, give them a sense of, of what it's like uh uh to to, to live in, in, in these buildings. Or, you know, not spending two hours every day in traffic, you know. I mean, there's obvious benefits. Yeah. Uh, so that, people uh, have to people have to tell us what well being means for them (laughs) that's how you identify the indicator and then there will be a measurable like air quality 
you know, length of commute, like there will be kind of all these indicators that can be can be measured. But um, yeah, kind of identifying precisely what they are will be interesting, interesting work. Absolutely. I think we probably should wrap up now. It's been fasc fascinating as it's been because we've been going on for, um, in, uh, we've overshot. Um, uh, but look, we will have you on again. Um, th th it was fascinating, Lena. Um, have you anything that you'd like to draw our listeners' attention to? Um, <laughs> I, I'm really, okay, so, so I started off doing kind of, you know, individual engagement events and then kind of planning programs of those to have a, a particular kind of end point. Um, so with locally led environment themes, it was a plan for action which they implemented over time. And in Limerick now, we've created this kind of organizing structure where there can be lots of different events and activities, but they're all working towards this societal goal. Um, and in all in that kind of journey for me, um, I've always just been hugely impressed by um just how creative and innovative people are in addressing the challenges that they face and and how there are so few pathways to actually use that as a lever of change. Um, so for anyone who's, who's listening, like it is just to do that thing. It is to have that conversation about something that could work better in their area or or discuss a challenge that they're facing around a retrofit with someone who, you know, and see if there can be a solution. These, these little things are really, really important and add up to a much bigger thing. And um, and I think if if there's more of a, and I think in Ireland, if you look at those EPA reports, which say so many people are worried and willing to take action, that there is a, and I work in a business school, you know, so, but there is a market now for change to happen. I think to exert the that power, and I don't mean just in terms of a financial market, but in terms even of a, you know, a market for policy or for political action, or, you know, that there is this kind of, we're ready. I think society is ready and, and people should exert that power to, to make it happen. That is hard work, isn't it? No easy answers. But you're absolutely right. All right, then. Well, um, shall we shall we wrap up? Yeah, there's no URLs or anything like that, Selena. Any websites or anything you want to draw people's attention to? Uh, yeah, well, there's a citizen innovation lab.ie, so that's still a prototype website, but it captures some of the experiences of people we've been uh, we've been working with in Limerick. Um, we've also got smartlablimerick.ie, which is a research project. Uh, website and we're currently looking for 100 building owners and occupiers who will get uh, smart sensors installed in their building and um, we'll take them on a journey to explore how much energy they can reduce through behaviour alone. Um, so yeah, they're my two my two plugs for the research work. You just need to get my boy involved and get him to talk about it in this podcast, you know, yeah. <laughs> rather than this dead end here. <laughs> cool. All right, well, Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we will talk again. Yeah, have you anything to plug in particular, Jeff, or is it just the usual stuff? Usual. Join ACAN, join the ACB, subscribe to Passive House Plus, uh, advertise if it is relevant to do so. Please share, like, review. <laughs> uh, please review the podcast, five stars, please. Um, and yeah, 
I think it's a desperate time. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well. Oh my god, I just said desperate time. I've never said that. Oh, yeah. I'll probably have a few at some stage, but it's oh, good. Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.